0: After those beautiful two steps forward in section 4, brace yourself, we have to take a step back in section 5. Now I love section 5. As one who studies faith and its loss, uh, what it's up against and how we overcome crises of faith, I have fallen in love with section 5 because it's about someone who's struggling in their own, namely Martin Harris. Now, By now it's been a while since he lost 116 pages, which he never found. And he never served like he served before as one of Joseph's scribes. Very shortly, next week in fact, we'll meet Oliver Cowdery who comes to fill that role. And Martin has other important things to do. That mission has closed for him, but others have opened. But here he's still struggling with something that seems to be this major stumbling block for him. Now notice how he begins the revelation here. Behold, I say unto you that as my servant Martin Harris... Now remember, he didn't call him by name at all in section 3. How did he refer to him? A wicked man. Ouch. Well, it's nice that God knows his name. And even more importantly, that he refers to him no longer as a wicked man, but rather as my servant. Now can both of those titles apply to us? Yes. And so often, God calls us out on our wickedness in order to call us out of our wickedness, to help us resume our roles as servants of God. Remember that beautiful reassurance back in section three, but God is merciful. Martin, you're still called, you're still my servant. But notice what Martin wants according to this revelation. My servant Martin Harris has desired a witness at my hand. We would call that a testimony a witness at my hand that you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., have got the plates of which you have testified and borne record that you have received of me. Now, part of me wants to just rip my hair out and go, seriously, Martin, you're still wondering after all you've been through? You've been acting as Joseph's scribe. Do you really think these sentences are just rolling off the tongue that he had 116 pages up there stored in memory, just ready to come out? That he's making this up off the fly? You've been writing under his direction. We skipped these verses at the end of the lesson last week. But do you remember how that section of Joseph Smith history ends? With Martin Harris taking the characters that Joseph had copied down from the plates, along with Joseph's translation of them, and to go to New York to meet with a professor, Charles Anthon. Because he wanted proof. That professor was described as a gentleman celebrated for his literary attainments. Martin's trying to establish some credibility based on what he perceives as Anton's expertise in Egyptian and Chaldaic and Assyriac and Arabic. Now, even claiming those levels of expertise would have been a bit presumptuous, either on Anton or on Martin Harris's part, since the Rosetta Stone had only been discovered in 1799, The Egyptian transliterated in 1822, and the Egyptian Grammar and Hieroglyphic Dictionary not even published until 1832, still a few years in the future. But as Martin Harris said, from this professor, this gentleman, with literary attainments and all these languages under his belt, he did receive a certificate certifying that the translation was accurate. And if that wasn't enough. After meeting with Professor Anthon, he goes and meets with a Dr. Mitchell and gets a second witness, a second intellectual witness, that is. Now you remember the rest of the story, as described there in Joseph Smith history, that as Professor Anthon asks, well, how did this young man find this record? And when Martin Harris mentions the ministering of angels, that's when Anthon says, give me back the certificate, and he tears it up. Now Anthon admittedly was asked about this later, and he denied the whole experience. And so it's now, he said, he said, do we trust Martin Harris or do we trust Charles Anthon? And we're never going to know exactly what the conversation entailed. However, we do know this. Martin Harris returned to Palmyra as convinced as ever. In fact, more convinced than ever that this was the work of God. Ready to mortgage his farm to help pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon. He came home convinced, whatever the specifics of the conversation entailed. And it wasn't just an intellectual witness alone. Because remember when, when Charles Anthony says, Well, just have the boy, forget angels, I don't believe in any of that. But have the young man bring me the plates, and I will translate them. And when Martin Harris says, Well, some of the book is sealed. And Anthony says, Well, I can't read a sealed book. And that's when another light bulb went off for Martin Harris. As he remembered the prophecy of Isaiah, who spoke of the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I am not learned. Now, I'm fascinated by the difference. Both the learned and the unlearned come up with some kind of a concern here. But for the learned, the, the obstacle, I, Oh, I, I, give me the book, I can do this, I just need to have access to it. And when it's this idea, well, the book is sealed. Well, when I can't read a sealed book. I mean, I have all the necessary qualifications. I can do all of this on my own. I just need access to the material. As opposed to the unlearned, who isn't concerned about the fact the book is sealed. He's concerned about the fact that he's not sufficiently knowledgeable. I don't know how. I'm not learned. You see the difference here? For the learned, the obstacle is external and inherent in the situation. For the unlearned, the obstacle is internal and inherent in the self. And you see the kind of difference that sets up? It's the difference between confidence and pride, or faith and humility. It's the difference between research and revelation. The difference between scholarship or discipleship. And which is the Lord after? You see, I think that this experience that Martin Harris has with Professor Anthon has less to do with what the professor is realizing or saying and more about something that Martin Harris and all of us need to understand. And it has to do with what really seals the truths of God from us. Is the obstacle out there or is it in here? Can we say, Lord, is it I? Can we acknowledge the one thing we lack? Can we come to God on our knees in humility, in sincerity, and seek for a miracle that can only come from Him? Do not trust in the arm of flesh, even when that flesh is clothed in the cap and gown of college graduation. Don't allow scholarship to eclipse discipleship or reason To deny the possibility of revelation. You remember the kind of veil that Moroni warned us about back in the book of Ether. He said to rend the veil of unbelief. Not the veil of ignorance. This, This learned man thought he knew everything. In fact, claimed to know more than he actually did. If he's boasting an Egyptian, let alone... Reformed Egyptian and say oh, yeah, that's the best translation. I've ever seen. I mean, I of course I can do it my, better myself, so just bring the book no Quit boasting in your own strength and seeking your own counsel remember section 3 Martin Trust instead in the wisdom and counsel of God trust that you don't know as much as you think you know and then in humility come to the source of all knowledge And only then can a sealed book become unsealed to you. Ignorance is not the problem. I'm here to help you overcome it. It's unbelief that is the obstacle. And Martin, that's the obstacle that you have to overcome. And you're not going to do it by seeking help from the learned because they can't figure it out themselves. You see, that's why even the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Martin's mind was insufficient. That that had already happened by the time you get to section 5. And what's he doing in verse 1? He's still wondering. He's still doubting. He's still desiring a witness. Does Joseph really have these plates? I've had two external, independent, intellectual witnesses that this translation is an accurate one. I've had a, I still wouldn't call it a spiritual witness. This is him still logically putting two and two together and going, oh, well, that checks the box for that Isaiah prophecy. So reason would demand that I accept that Joseph has the plates if scriptural prophecy is being fulfilled. But again, those are still external. And the Lord is trying to help work on the internal. Let me put it another way. And this is going to be a preview of coming attractions for next week. Next week, in section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord will tell us that revelation is when God speaks to the mind and the heart. Now, of those two body parts, which had Martin been leaning towards all this time, Martin was too much head and not enough heart. As we'll see next week, Oliver Cowdery was too much heart and not enough head. I love that these two of the first of the three witnesses help us see the need to balance these, to prove the contraries on these two. It's awesome. But in Martin's case, it's all head. I want to take, I want to take the characters and the, in, in, in fact, even the last 116 pages. I want to show proof to my wife, to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors. Don't make me ask them to rely upon the heart. They're going to rely upon the head. Let me satisfy it. In fact, please satisfy that for me. This is the same Martin Harris who had wanted proof to the point that he went to different members of the Smith family when they were alone to ask them for their version of the story. See what he's doing? He's seeking independent corroboration. It's like, okay, Hiram's version does, does match Sophronia's. Okay, uh, what, what am I going to make of all this? This is the same Martin Harris that wanted proof To the point that at another time, when he and Joseph were engaged in the translation of the 116 pages, and again, Joseph was not a bookworm. He was not educated. Remember Mother Smith had said, he was my deepest thinker, but he was the least inclined to book study. So sitting down and trying to translate the scriptures must have been a chore for Joseph. And there were times he just needed a break. And being strong, athletic, young, sometimes they'd go out to the river and he'd take up rocks and just start skipping them. I would love that. I just love that mental image of Joseph skipping stones in the middle of the work of translation. And it's like, hey, Martin, come come throw this one. Well, at one point, Martin picked up a stone that he thought would be a good one to skip. And when he looked at it, it looked a lot like the seer stone that Joseph had been using in the translation. And so he kind of just tucked it away in his pocket and didn't say anything about it. But he made sure he got back to the house before Joseph did, just early enough to be able to switch out the seer stone. And took the one Joseph had been using and hid that in his pocket and put the one he'd found out by the river in its place. Just to see what was going to happen. And when Joseph began to try to translate again, he says, it's as dark as Egypt in here. But then as he was wondering, why, why can't I translate? Then it must have been a sheepish Martin Harris that was you know, pulling a, a stone out of his... <laughs> Sorry, just switcheroo, forgive me. But you see what Martin is doing over and over with all these different kinds of things. I just want to know. I desire a witness. I want proof that you have the plates. And I want it to be head-based, not heart-centered. Intellectual. And not spiritual alone. Now the irony here, if you look at verse 1 we get a sense for the kind of proof, keep that in quotation marks, that the Lord is offering Martin. And it's very different from the kind of proof that he'd been seeking all this time. Read it more closely. Behold, I say unto you that as my servant Martin Harris has desired a witness at my hand that you, my servant Joseph Smith Jr., have got the plates. Now here's the clue of which you have testified and borne record that you have received of me. See what the Lord's getting at? Martin, you've had a witness. It's the witness that comes of someone else's testimony. Joseph has testified. He has borne record to you. So not only are you struggling with a lack of faith in God, you seem to be struggling with a lack of trust in your neighbor. And if the two great commandments are to love God and to love neighbor, part of that love is trusting. It's the faith and the hope that are part of the charity. You see, notice how he says it in verse 2. Now behold, this shall you say unto him. He's speaking to Joseph and telling Joseph what to say to Martin. He who spake unto you, so this is God speaking to Joseph, said unto you, so here's the Lord's words to the prophet, I, the Lord, am God, and have given these things unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and have commanded you that you should stand as a witness of these things. And that's exactly what Joseph has been trying to do. Like verse 1 said, he testified, he bore record. What I'm trying to emphasize here is verse 1 suggests that instead of all these intellectual or external proofs that Martin is after, the proof that you are being offered... Is personal testimony verse 2 God told Joseph what are you to give to Martin Harris personal testimony stand as a witness of these things now why is that so important think about what Paul taught the Romans this is a favorite verse for my evangelical friends so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God How does our faith first come? We hear it. The Word of God is first given to prophetic witnesses who then bear testimony of those things. And it is in hearing their witness that faith begins to grow within us. To make this even more clear, and to me even more fascinating, when Joseph and Sidney Rigdon teach the lectures on faith, at the School of the Prophets. Again, that was the doctrine that was originally the Doctrine and Covenants. In the second lecture on faith, it's a really interesting one. Lecture 1 talked about what faith is. Lecture 2 talks more about how it comes. And in that lecture, this statement appears. The evidence which these men... He's listed father to son, father to son, prophet to prophet throughout the Old Testament. The evidence which these men had of the existence of a God which is the first element of faith that they talked about. You have to know that he exists. Then you can learn what he's like, and then you can learn that you're following his will. But the evidence that these men had of the existence of a God was the testimony of their fathers in the first instance. So it all started with divine revelation to the prophet himself. But from that point forward, faith grew out of trust in someone's personal testimony. Now, this must have been a point of emphasis, because two verses later, the lecture continues, Let this class mark particularly that the testimony which these men had of the existence of a God was the testimony of man. So this vertical connection you're after, faith in God, starts with a horizontal connection. Trust in the testimony of a fellow mortal. Now hold on to that thought, because part of you might, might think, well, well, eliminate the middleman, right? I want direct access, and that is true of the eventual goal. That's taught in the Lectures on Faith, too. But listen to how the lecture ends. This is the final statement as it wraps it all up. We have now clearly set forth how it is and how it was that God became an object of faith for rational beings. So I'm not trying to get you to shelf the head, okay? These are rational beings. And also, upon what foundation the testimony was based, which excited the inquiry and diligent search of the ancient saints. So this isn't blind faith. You still need to inquire. You still need to diligently search. But what is it that excites that inquiry, that motivates us to engage in the diligent search? What is it that makes us want to seek after and obtain a knowledge of the glory of God? Here's the answer. We have seen that it was human testimony and human testimony only, that excited this inquiry in the first instance in their minds. It was the credence they gave to the testimony of their fathers, this testimony having aroused their minds to inquire after the knowledge of God. The inquiry frequently terminated, indeed always terminated, when rightly pursued, in the most glorious discoveries and eternal certainty. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that final statement of the lecture. Please don't misunderstand me. This is not meant to encourage blind faith in somebody else's testimony. But that is a necessary starting point. Faith first came by hearing. Someone else had this powerful spiritual experience. God parted the heavens and spoke to man, to Adam, to Enoch. In some ways, that's what dispensation heads are for to regain direct access and then to begin to spread personal testimony, not to end with that and simply to make everyone else a slave to their word, but rather to excite them to have similar experiences of their own. Remember Moses, would that all of God's people were prophets. I want you to see what I have seen. Remember Enoch, I want the whole city to come to God. Remember Abraham, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Spread this news. Joseph, new dispensation. Now bear personal testimony and excite in others a desire, not simply to stay and stall on your personal witness, but to be motivated to gain a testimony of God directly for themselves. Now one of the most interesting things about the lectures on faith it was a catechism of sorts. And catechism is like this rote memorization, things you're supposed to know. It's like having the primary kids memorize the 13 articles of faith before they can graduate to young men and young women. I still wish that we kind of held them to that a little bit better or make them sing in the primary program when you're 13, 14, 15. You'd probably have a lot of older young men and young women sitting in the back feeling sheepish. But The catechism that came at the end of every lecture was a series of questions that the School of the Prophets, the members were supposed to be able to answer for themselves. Now the catechism at the end of lecture two, the the test at the end of class, would have been brutal. Nearly 150 questions, and since most of this was how does the word get down, get passed along through the generations, it was all about father to son, what's the genealogy through Genesis. And even the ages of father to son, so you could see kind of the overlap of all of these generations. Do you see how the, how the baton is being passed? Personal testimony through every link of the chain. But most of these questions at the end, so how old was Mahalalil when, when he begat? So I was like, huh? And they were supposed to know. Well, at the end of the catechism, here's the questions that in my opinion really matter. Question 144. What testimony have men, in the first instance, that there is a God? And the answer? Human testimony. And human testimony only. Question 145. What excited the ancient saints to seek diligently after a knowledge of the glory of God, His perfections and attributes? Answer. The credence they gave to the testimony of their fathers. Question 146. How do men obtain a knowledge of the glory of God, His perfections and attributes? Answer. By devoting themselves to His service through prayer and supplication incessantly, strengthening their faith in Him until, like Enoch, the brother of Jared, and Moses, they obtain a manifestation of God to themselves. So again, we're emphasizing that it, we don't stop at the testimony of others. This isn't blind obedience. This isn't faith in man. You have to gain a testimony of your own. So devote yourself to his service. Pray, supplicate, do it incessantly. Strengthen your faith until you receive a similar manifestation. You can know for yourself. Eventually, yes, you are to eliminate that middleman, but not at the start. At the beginning, you depend upon that middleman. That's why God called him to begin with. But then here's the next question. Question 147. Is the knowledge of the existence of God a matter of mere tradition founded upon human testimony alone until a person receives a manifestation of God to themselves? And the answer? Simply two words. It is. So there is this admission. Well, so is it just tradition? Now we seem to look down upon the traditions of our fathers, but only if those traditions are wicked. The tradition of belief in God, is that all it is? Is our belief in God mere tradition? Well, as the lecture specifies, it is until you receive your own manifestation. So hopefully, it's crystal clear that I'm not trying to just wash my hands of and say, "Oh, it's tradition—it's just no. It's tradition, and we follow it, and it's fine." No, you need to gain your own testimony. Now, I know this can be confusing. I'm really trying to balance something here, to prove a contrary, between knowing for ourselves and trusting in the testimony of others. It's not one or the other. It has to be both. But it begins with trusting someone else. And that, to me, is what Section 5 is is emphasizing for Martin Harris. Now, we'll see this hinted at in Section 46, when he's describing the gifts of the Spirit. And he says that to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Direct connection. And to others it is given to believe on their words. That's trusting in another person's personal testimony. But how does the verse end? That they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. So there's no difference in result there. Again, the hope is that everybody returns to God, and everybody comes to know Him in the process. But in the the meantime, there is a difference between those who know directly for themselves and those who believe on their words. No hierarchy of ultimate reward, but yes, a hierarchy of original understanding. And why is that important? Why am I spending so much time on this concept? Because this way, testimony is not just propositional, it is relational. In other words, I'm not just checking boxes. Yep, got a testimony of that, got a testimony of that, got a testimony of that. It was I eliminated all the middlemen. It's just me and God. And independent of any other person, I can connect vertically. I can be off in my cloister, separated from any other person. I can be an ancient stylite on top of my tower. I can be alone with God and not have to worry about any of his Other children no the second great commandment is like unto the first that loving our neighbor is part and parcel of our love of God that it's one thing to say I'm spiritual but not religious but at the end of the day it's really hard to be truly spiritual without the religious component that requires us to live outside of ourselves to actually associate with one another So do you start to sense this difference? Not just propositional testimony, but relational testimony. It's not just independent, it now becomes interdependent. It doesn't just connect me to God. It connects me to others. What is this covenant for? What priesthood promises are being planted in the hearts of the children? things that will turn their hearts to one another. One of the great blessings of the restored gospel is the relational aspect of salvation. That as I come to love and know and trust in God, I come to love and know and trust in my neighbor. Now, can I be burned by my neighbor? Sure. But to go through life cynically and just look around at everyone wondering who's out to get me, Who can I trust? Who's trying to take advantage of me? That's a nightmare. And unfortunately, that's kind of a nightmare that we're beginning to live. One of the defining characteristics of these last days is a massive erosion of trust in one another. And as the church is established to restore God's people, it's not just to restore them to a right relationship with Him, but to a right relationship with one another. In our day, we think that contracts and and notary publics and legalese and litigation are meant to restore our trust in one another. All those things are required so that we can trust each other. No, all those things are evidence that we don't trust one another. I'm going to make you sign on the dotted line and get it stamped and notarized and, and put in triplicate and filed away somewhere. Those things do not infuse trust into the social fabric. They bear a sad testimony that trust is lacking there. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? The law said, thou shalt not forswear thyself. In other words, don't break your oaths. I mean, make them, swear them, stamp and notarize them, but make sure you keep them. Well, that was the law. The, the terrestrial level of living. I'm asking you to do something higher and holier. I say, the Lord continues, swear not at all. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that meant don't use any curse words. And that's important too. But what he's saying there, why do you need to swear and make oaths and covenants to each other? That's evidence that you don't trust each other and that you can't trust each other. He says in that verse, Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Understand what he's saying? Let your yes mean yes. If you say no, then you meant no. And I don't have to have a lawyer draw up a contract for it. I gave you my word. Anything more than that cometh of evil. It's a result of the evil in humanity. It's a result of the erosion of trust in one another. That I'll trust the promise of litigation. I can sue you and make sure that you do what you said you'd do. Again, that's simply sad evidence that we have gotten to a point where we cannot trust anyone. And one of the powerful principles at the beginning of section 5, and at the beginning of the restoration for that matter, is that we're trying to unify humanity horizontally and not just bring them all back to God vertically. We want to get to the point where we eventually stand independently with God on our own two spiritual feet. But all along the way we learn to trust in each other. Hearts turn from fathers to children. I believe in the spiritual experience that my father had. I trust in the testimony of my mother. I believe in the experiences of the pioneers and the prophets who went before me. And that does excite in me a desire to gain my independent witness. When all is said and done, I do know God, but I know my neighbor. I do love God, but I love my ancestors. I do trust God, but I trust my fellow man. See this contrary that God has proven? It's amazing. Martin, learn to trust Joseph Smith. He won't leave you with that. Joseph isn't trying to get you to stop with trust in him. He wants you to have an independent witness. Believe me. He's going to wrestle with you and try to help you get to that point as you become one of the three witnesses. It will be a huge relief to him once you no longer have to rely on his testimony. But that has to be a preliminary step. Because you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Faith has to precede that miracle. You've got to learn to live the second commandment on the way to the first. Now from here on out, keep an eye out for those ideas throughout the rest of section 5. The independent vertical witness as compared to the interdependent horizontal one. Or even the spiritual as opposed to the physical. Because remember, Martin really wants the physical, the tangible, the proof, the intellectual. Just satisfy my head. I don't want to have to trust in the heart. But he's going to do a little quick aside here to mention a few other things on the way. Verse 3, I have caused you that you should enter into a covenant with me, this is still to Joseph, that you should not show them except to those persons to whom I commanded you. And you have no power over them except I grant it unto you. Remember, Moroni had made that crystal clear with Joseph Smith, those four years of preparation. These aren't your plates, they're God's. It's not your power to translate, it's God's gift and power to you. So you don't get to just pick and choose and decide, Oh, sure, take, take, them, take the 116 pages and show your wife and family. No, th- these plates do not belong to you. And part of the reason you're under covenant not to show them to others is you don't know if these others have passed the point of faith preceding the miracle. You don't know if they have passed their trial of faith so that now they are ready for a witness. Joseph... Do not short-circuit or shortchange the process of developing faith. This is an example of divine restraint. God, who could show us all things, prove every atheist wrong, instead restrains himself so that he can do what James described. Let patience have her perfect work. To allow faith to develop in us. If you've ever had a spotter when you're trying to lift weights, yank the bar up too early to the point that you're frustrated, going, "Ah, you didn't give me the chance to struggle against that. And that's the struggle that that builds my muscles. God is a spotter with perfect timing, who knows just when you have developed enough that then he can help lift the weight. Or if we shift from building physical muscles back to the reality of building spiritual muscles, building faith, Faith requires the absence of proof long enough for it to develop. If you've ever had this experience as a teacher, when you ask a question, and it's a good question, but it takes some time to think about it. It's amazing to watch teachers get so nervous about silence that they fill in the blank far too quickly. And it's like, no, 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 no. I was working on that. I was trying to figure it out. And now you gave me the answer. You robbed me of the chance to wrestle with it. Again, do you see why in verse 3, Joseph is put under covenant not to show them too early? I think, again, that's why he's being very clear with Joseph. The plates aren't yours to give. The proof isn't yours to show. I remember an experience I had when I was young and foolish. Now I'm old and foolish. But I remember when I was first endowed in the temple, being fascinated by the symbolism of it all. And I would go to the temple and come home and just pour through the scriptures, trying to make sense of, why did we say that, or do that, or see that? What what is he trying to teach? And it really felt like the Lord was opening the mysteries of the kingdom to me. The scriptures became an entirely new book, and it was fascinating. Now during those times, I was still single, I would go sometimes with my friends to the temple. And we'd be there in the celestial room after having gone through a session, and I remember there'd be times I'd just lean over and go, what'd you think of this part? Or what do you think he means by this? And we'd start to discuss. And there were times that I had such an amazing, eye-opening, aha moment in my scripture study in between temple sessions that I just wanted to share it. I just want to let them know, I think when we do this, he wants us to understand this. Or there's this amazing scripture in Leviticus that helps us make sense of this part of the ordinance. And I was just really excited to share. I'm, I'm a teacher at heart, right? But I remember very clearly in one of those experiences... The spirit kind of whapping me upside the head after the conversation in the celestial room saying Jared I taught you that Let me teach them that too that insight came to you after wrestling and studying and pondering and thinking and growing spiritually all along the way and You just gave it to them you left no pause to think between asking a question and then answering it yourself Oh, great job showing off your knowledge but you never gave them an opportunity to develop their own I'm trying to build muscle here quit lifting the bar before they start to sweat a little Joseph the plates aren't yours to show the proof isn't yours to give that's my department so what do you do You excite a desire in their mind. You bear personal testimony. You give them a description of what you're eating. But then it's up to them to come to the tree of life and partake for themselves. Remember what Lehi did. He didn't pick fruit and then throw it down the path that Nephi's got good hands. He'll be able to share it with the others. No, he simply told them how it tasted, and left it to them to come. Some did, some didn't. Joseph, verse 4, you have a certain gift. It's your gift to translate. It's the first gift that I've bestowed upon you, but there's so many others yet to come. I've commanded you that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this. For I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. Each gift seems to have its purpose, its timetable almost. Use this gift. Restrain your... It's like Christmas morning when the tragedy of it all is that kids are, are tearing through gifts so fast that they don't have time to experience or savor or even appreciate the last one. Oh, there's another, one, another box to unwrap. No. Each gift, each test, each trial... There is such restraint and patience on God's part between each one. Let this gift work in you until it has served its purpose. Develop this muscle, then move on to the next one. This is how we grow in faith. This is how we grow up in God. Now in verse 5, Verily I say unto you, that woe shall come unto the inhabitants of the earth, if they will not hearken unto my words. And hearkening to God's words will require faith. If you've short-circuited it, if you've just gotten to the point where they have all the intellectual proof that they want, but they've developed no spiritual faith along the way, then they're not hearkening to my words. Again, don't short-circuit the, the process. Verse 6, For hereafter you shall be ordained, and go forth, and deliver my words unto the children of men. More personal testimony spreading forth. But you haven't been ordained yet. A little foreshadowing of the priesthood coming up shortly. Then in verse 7, Behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, if it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. Verse 7 is so important. It teaches us that believing is seeing, but seeing is not believing. You can have all the proof in the world, but if you never develop faith along the way, it doesn't change you. It doesn't connect you to God or connect you to humanity. It just connects you to a piece of information that is no longer deniable. It's no longer a test. It doesn't tell me anything about you anymore. That testimony is now simply propositional. You check the box. Yes, I can give mental assent. I can acquiesce to that obvious statement of fact. The proof of the proposition that one and one equals two doesn't tell me anything about myself, but faith in the possibility that one person and another person can come together and form more than the sum of their parts. That tells me something about me and about my marriage. It tells me something about relationships and trusting in another person and trusting in God and becoming something more than I am. In response to this thought of, oh, if only, and I'm sure you heard this as a missionary, if only you had the golden plates in a museum in Salt Lake City, then I would believe in the Book of Mormon. That's essentially what Martin Harris is asking for. And it's exactly what the Lord is describing in verse 7. And telling us why there's no such exhibit. I think it was Brad Wilcox who said, well, go to Jerusalem. There is an exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can see them. I've been there. It's an amazing exhibit, great museum, but has the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls restored the world to faith in the Bible's message? It proves to me the existence of some ancient scrolls, but it does nothing to prove the existence of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. It offers me no intellectual proof of the resurrection. The scrolls are on display, but the Spirit can't be So what am I left with? Faith preceding the miracle. So hold the evidence back until faith has had time to develop. You see, go back to the next verse. All those that are demanding entrance to the exhibit or ready to tear down the museum because the important exhibit is not there. Verse 8, O this unbelieving and stiff-necked generation, mine anger is kindled against them. You see what the Lord is trying to change? Their unbelief. Their stiff-neckedness. The problem is not their ignorance. It's their obstinance. It's their lack of faith. Not their lack of knowledge. So to give them time to work on their belief, to develop their faith, to soften their stiff-necks. Verse 9, Verily I say unto you, I have reserved those things which I have entrusted unto you, my servant Joseph, for a wise purpose in me, and it shall be made known unto future generations. But this generation shall have my word through you." Verse 10 is what ties it all the way back to verse 1. You have testified. You have borne record. You are the dispensation head. You're the first one to get it directly, and then it's personal testimony that will excite in others the desire to come to know for themselves that your witness is true. I will come to know God, but I will come to know His prophets along the way. So don't get too frustrated when you butt up against the restraint of God. When He reserves certain things to come to your understanding later in life. Please learn to trust the process. We talked about this multiple times in the Book of Mormon last year, about perfect knowledge eclipsing faith. And if it happens too early, then faith never had a chance to perform its saving work. It's like those people in Third Nephi who no longer could disbelieve because the sign of the day, night, and day with no darkness had come. And now it's no longer possible to disbelief, which means it's no longer possible to believe. No room for doubt means no room for faith. Both have simply been erased in a flood of perfect knowledge. Remember when Jesus comes to the Nephites and has been teaching all these incredible truths and as Mormon is studying these records he wants to include them all in his abridgment. But the Lord holds him back just like he's holding back Joseph here. He says to him, I will try the faith of my people. Not just try it. He will allow it to exist at all. As he said there, if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, the smaller portion that I'm allowing you to record, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Just like what Alma taught, that the Lord always provides both a greater portion and a lesser portion of the word. And depending upon the softness of our heart, or conversely as it says here, the stiffness of our neck, we'll get one or the other. I will give and I will withhold. I will reveal and I will reserve based on whatever is best for my children to give them the opportunity to develop themselves spiritually. God does not answer his own questions before silence has its room to work. And in the meantime, verse 10, trust in the words of prophets. Let them ignite in you a desire to know for yourself. Now, verse 11, he's not going to be alone in that. Remember, God is never after blind faith as his ultimate goal. Verse 11, in addition to your testimony, The testimony of three of my servants whom I shall call and ordain unto whom I will show these things and they shall go forth with my words that are given through you. So God is still wanting to work through the law of witnesses. By two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Here there will be three additional witnesses. And guess what, Martin? You'll be one of them. Verse 12. Yea, they shall know of a surety. And that's really what Martin's after. That these things are true for from heaven will I declare it unto them. It's like even there, where's the testimony's source going to be? Heaven or earth? Will it be purely temporal, physical, or will it be spiritual? Is it all head, or is it heart? Well, it's going to be both. Verse 12, I'll declare it to you from heaven. Verse 13, I will give them power that they may behold and view these things as they are. So you'll get the physical witness too. But I do love the order of 12 first, declared by God from heaven. 13 second, then you'll behold and view. Faith must precede the miracle. Verse 14, and to none else will I grant this power, to receive this same testimony among this generation. It's gotta be that, I have gotta keep it confined, reserved, enough perfect knowledge so that faith has a leg to stand on. Enough rational proof so that people can sink their brains into something but not so much that they can let their heart wither within. God is a master at proving these contraries. I've often said that God gives us just enough evidence to confirm our faith, but not so much evidence as to obviate our faith. He doesn't make the evidence so overwhelming that faith is no longer necessary. Faith needs to be there, because of what it does for us, individually and collectively. I'm more loving and trusting of other people. I'm more patient with other people because I've learned to develop faith. In fact, I'm more loving and, and patient with myself because I've had to develop faith in other areas as well. Keep going in 14. This is how it has to be. Okay? So none else will I grant this power. To receive this testimony among this generation. In this, the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church, out of the wilderness, clear as the moon, fair as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. I love that description of the church. He actually borrows that language from the Song of Solomon, by the way, which does let us know that there's at least some redeeming language even in that book of Scripture and it provides a beautiful image of just the church coming forth you get this revelation chapter 12 kind of imagery of the church coming out of the wilderness and boy it's ready to rock clear as the moon there's a softness there a beauty there fair as the sun there's a clarity there and terrible as an army with banners whoa there's the there's the strength there interesting combination of attributes as well but I do love that this is the first, actually, the first chronological instance where the church is mentioned in a revelation. Yes, section 1 talked about the only true and living church that God was well pleased with. But that, again, comes a year and a half after the church is organized. Here, even before the priesthood is restored, he speaks of the coming forth of the church. But what's the context of this mention? This is how the church is going to rise up and come forth. On the basis of personal testimony as hearts turn to each other and turn to God this is how it's going to come without the horizontal there's no church it's simply isolated individuals occupying a monastery of one if we're ever going to become clear as the moon and fair as the Sun and terrible as an army with banners then it's going to take an army of us to get there We're going to have to come together, a family of the faith, the household of God, members of the body of Christ. Verse 15 reiterates the law of witnesses, the testimony of three witnesses will I send forth of my word. And then what happens? Verse 16, behold, whosoever believeth on my words, that's the horizontal trust, Them will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit, that's the vertical trust, And then shall they be born of me, even of water and of the Spirit. That's baptism and confirmation. That's entering the church that he just mentioned in verse 14. We believe in the words of others. And that ignites within us a desire to come to know for ourselves. Now verse 17, we still have to be patient. You must wait yet a little while, for ye are not yet ordained. There's again another foreshadowing of priesthood. Verse 18, and their testimony shall also go forth unto the condemnation of this generation if they harden their hearts against them. Back in verse 8, it was the unbelieving and the stiff-neckedness that he was concerned about. Verse 18, same thing, the hardened heart. Because in verse 19, a desolating scourge shall go forth among the inhabitants of the earth and shall continue to be poured out from time to time, Don't think that the recent coronavirus is the only possible fulfillment of this kind of prophecy. The Spanish flu 100 years earlier. So many things that have happened and I'm sure will yet happen that can qualify as those desolating scourges being poured out to soften our hearts, to get us to realize our need for one another. Has that happened to you as you've been confined and quarantined, wanting a little more horizontal and not just the solitary vertical, but however many times that's required to remind us of these truths, it will be poured out from time to time if we repent not until the earth is empty and the inhabitants thereof are consumed away and utterly destroyed by the brightness of my coming. Again, that seems pretty daunting, but think back to our discussion from section 1. As servants are meant to raise this voice of warning and also go forth to seal those people up to eternal life who will listen verse 20 behold i tell you these things even as i also told the people of the destruction of jerusalem and my word shall be verified at this time as it hath hitherto been verified that ought to comfort us immensely just as jesus spoke of the signs of the times of the destruction of jerusalem shortly after his day many of which would parallel the kinds of things we face in our last final day And yet remember what we saw in section 1. The prophecies and promises which are in them shall be fulfilled. These prophecies might scare us, but the promises should reassure us. And just as the Lord told the apostles and disciples in his day that they would flee to Zion, that's actually exactly what happened. In 70 AD when the Romans came and leveled the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. Josephus describes it as, as the streets of Jerusalem flowing with Jewish blood. Where were the Christians in all of that? In a place called Pella, north and east of Israel and the Decapolis, where the Christians were preserved. I think it was Eusebius, the early church historian, that described that event and talked about them heeding the oracles of God and knowing to, to gather in holy places. Section 133, the appendix of the Doctrine and Covenants, speaks of similar kinds of things. Jerusalem was destroyed, but his people were preserved. And just like his word was verified then, so shall it be verified now. But what's that going to take? It's going to take faith in God's promises and prophets. It's going to take trusting in other people who are called to lead us. It's going to take faith in personal testimony that is then confirmed by divine testimony. Now in verse 21 the Lord shifts gears and speaks to Joseph about Joseph for a moment. Most of this has been more directed to Martin. But he says to Joseph in verse 21, I command you my servant Joseph to repent and walk more uprightly before me and to yield to the persuasions of men no more. Looks like Joseph hasn't completely overcome that weakness that we saw identified back in section 3. And, we should add, Martin hasn't overcome it either. Both of them were chastised in section 3. Quit worrying so much about what other people think. Quit succumbing to the persuasions of men. Joseph, you especially have to get over that. Otherwise, you will be tempted over and over again to prove to people that you're right. This is like Jesus' second temptation. Throw yourself from the Temple Mount. Prove to people. Give them evidence that you're the Son of God. The angels will come swooping in and make sure you don't dash your foot against the stone. And the crowd will go wild. The crowd will be full of faith. They'll know. Well, no, that was the problem. They wouldn't be full of faith. They would only be full of knowledge. They would know, but would have never had the chance to come to believe along the way. Joseph, you have to learn to develop divine restraint just like I have and the beauty of it is he learned it he didn't show off the gold plates every chance he could or as we'll see later in section I think 127 he's so content to just say some say I'm good some say I'm evil I'll let you decide just ask God about it I love how unconcerned Joseph becomes with his own reputation or the temptation to establish it for other people He would struggle with it off and on through his life. But by and large, he accepted God's call to repent and to yield no more to worldly persuasion. Verse 22, still to Joseph, Be firm in keeping the commandments wherewith I have commanded you, including the ones to keep these things reserved until patience and faith have had their time. And if you do this, behold, I grant unto you eternal life. And then this interesting addition, even if you should be slain huh why'd you have to throw that in remember joseph's been facing persecution ever since he first mentioned the first vision wait it's gonna get worse huh? maybe i just said if well yeah but i kind of worry about your ifs lord and you probably should honestly i see this verse as the first of many steps that will eventually lead to carthage The first foreshadowing, 15 years before the martyrdom. Just keep my commandments, Joseph. Don't try to prove anything. Let people develop their faith. Some will trust you. Some will not. But like we saw in section 4, it's not their reactions. It's your actions that matter. So be faithful and I promise you eternal life even if their reaction is so violent that, they're, that you're slain. Keep an eye out for similar foreshadowing that will come throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Squint a little, and you'll see Carthage in the distance. Verse 23, he then says, Again I speak unto you, my servant Joseph, concerning the man that desires the witness. So the Lord is going back to some of this kind of distant language. He calls him by name in verse 1, my servant Martin Harris. Now it's, well, this man, that we're, this friend of yours that we're discussing. Here's my message to him, verse 24. He exalts himself and does not humble himself sufficiently before me. But if he will bow down before me and humble himself in mighty prayer and faith, in the sincerity of his heart, then will I grant unto him a view of the things which he desires to see. You see, the ultimate result is the same. You'll get to see what you want to see. You'll have that intellectual proof, but it will no longer stand alone. It'll have faith to fortify it. It'll have a second leg to stand on. You see, by withholding it, or reserving it, as he says back in verse 9, I'm giving you the time to develop humility, faith, sincerity, all of these Christ-like attributes that will be required of you. Remember, salvation isn't a matter of checking off the boxes of all the things you know. It's what have you become. So become those things. Quit exalting yourself so that I can ultimately exalt you. Humble yourself so I don't have to force humiliation upon you. Bow down So I don't have to bring you to your knees. Develop the mighty prayer of faith so that your mighty prayers aren't only for repentance. Then the Lord says something fascinating in verse 25. I love what he does here. Then he shall say unto the people of this generation. So this in some ways is the very first missionary discussion. And it's laid out right before this eventual missionary, Martin Harris. So once you gain a testimony, here's what I want you to say to people. Behold, I have seen the things which the Lord hath shown unto Joseph Smith, Jr., and I know of a surety that they are true, for I have seen them, for they have been shown unto me by the power of God and not of man. Now we're starting to see this this combination of head and heart, of, of divine and earthly, temporal and spiritual, I've seen them, there's the the tangible, the empirical, but they've been shown me by the power of God and not of man. In other words, it wasn't just that I convinced Joseph to to lift up the cover and show me the plates. I had to come to God and prove to him that faith had performed its work and I was ready to have faith in that thing eclipsed by perfect knowledge. But which of those two is Martin offering to his hearers? Martin can't show the plates. They're not in his control any more than they were in Joseph. In fact, far less. He can't prove them by the power of man. He's going to have to excite in them a desire to have that proof come to them by the power of God. Verse 26, the Lord is crystal clear, and that's the end of the first discussion, Martin. In other words, I don't want you to become the kind of missionary that you demanded Joseph to be, or worse, that you demanded me to be. You went around seeking proof, and I wouldn't give it to you, and neither would Joseph. So don't you dare go giving proof to other people. I wouldn't short-circuit your opportunity to develop faith, so don't do that to others. Verse 26, I the Lord command him, my servant Martin Harris, that he shall say no more unto them concerning these things. Except he shall say. So let me clarify it one more time. I have seen them. They have been shown unto me by the power of God, and they are the words which he shall say. <laughs> See over and over, just this. No, no, no. Wait. Can I talk about Charles Anthony? No. Forget that. Can I talk about switching the seer stones and independent corroboration of testimony from the members of the Smith family? Can I? Can I please, Can I? Can I talk about the 116 pages and it? Martin, please. Be a better missionary to them than the kind of missionary you demanded for yourself. Give them a chance to build their faith. You see, honestly, from my own perspective, I have a love-hate relationship with traditional apologetics. Because traditional apologetics is, here's the answer to your question. I was wondering about this, or I I heard this, I read this piece of anti-Mormonism, or whatever. Give me an answer. And again, I'm grateful that it's out there. I'm grateful it exists. But typically, when I work with people one-on-one, it's not the answer I'm trying to plant in them. It's faith I'm trying to coax out of them. And that's taken a long time for me to get to that point. Through my mission, and through much of my my early time as a teacher, it was answer here, and answer there, and explanation this, and, and evidence for this, and prove, prove, prove as much as possible. I am grateful that over the years the Spirit has whispered to me similar things to what he's whispering or perhaps shouting here to Martin Harris. This is as much as you can give, but don't shortchange faith. The ultimate result here needs to be their softened heart and bent knee. Their relationship with God not just the answer to their question. So bear testimony, Martin. Tell them that, yes, I've seen it. But the real testimony came by the power of God for me and will for you as well. Someday your faith will be eclipsed by perfect knowledge. But in the meantime, take advantage of the chance to grow. I love this first discussion as given to Martin Harris, and again based on Martin's personality, no wonder the Lord had to be so emphatic. Just this, no, 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 no. Just, just please, just bear your testimony, and hope that it will excite in them a desire to find out for themselves. Verse 27: If he deny this, he will break the covenant which he has before covenanted with me, and behold, he is condemned. And we've already been through that once with 116 pages, Martin. Let's not do that again. Verse 28, Now except he humble himself and acknowledge unto me the things which he has done which are wrong. That's a really long way of saying one word. Repent. And covenant with me that he will keep my commandments. That's a really long way of saying this one word. Commit. Or covenant. And exercise faith in me. You see the three things he's asking us to do? Exercise faith, repent, and make a covenant. Sound a little like the fourth article of faith? Faith, repentance, baptism. And what's the fourth part? What will God do if we do the first three? He's already told us. I'll give you a witness. I'll let you see the things that you seek. Verse 28 flips it. If you don't do the first three, then you won't get to the fourth. No faith, no repentance, no commitment or covenant. Behold, I say unto him, He shall have no such views. For I will grant unto him no views of the things of which I have spoken. You see, it's your faith and your repentance and your commitment that prepare you, make you worthy to have the Holy Ghost as your companion to begin with. Verse 29 then, If this be the case, I command you, my servant Joseph, that you shall say unto him that he shall do no more, nor trouble me any more concerning this matter. (laughs) Can you get a sense there that the Lord is like Martin? Can we be done here? If you're not going to do it my way, I'm not going to do it yours. You pestered me over and over again with the 116 pages. Don't repeat the mistake with the golden plates. If you're not going to do it this way, then do no more and trouble me no more. Verse 30, If this be the case, behold, I say unto thee, Joseph, when thou hast translated a few more pages, thou shalt stop for a season, even until I command thee again, then thou mayest translate again. You see, some of this translation process was writing was on Martin Harris and the softness of his heart and the gaining of his testimony. He was the scribe, after all. But to have a scribe that is writing down Scripture when he's not exactly sure if it's Scripture at all, that he's wondering what exactly Joseph Smith, where is he, this coming from? I don't know. Now, for you to participate in the production of the Word of God, you need to have trust in God's Word to begin with. So if it gets to that point, Joseph, get to a good pausing place in the translation, and then wait and pick it up later. And ultimately he does, but with a new scribe, as we'll meet next week in section 6. This is when Oliver Cowdery comes and picks up where Martin left off. As we'll see, Oliver didn't have Martin's heart problems. He needed to do a little bit more of the head work that Martin was good at. There's, there's going to be a balance between the two that I love. Well, let's finish the section. Verse 31: Except thou do this, behold, thou shalt have no more gift, and I will take away the things which I have entrusted with thee. This is as serious for you, Joseph, as it is for Martin. And then 32, fascinating. Now, because I foresee the lying in wait to destroy thee, he's still talking to Joseph, so much persecution, opposition, especially by other people who share Martin's doubt, but don't share Martin's restraint. Yea, I foresee that if my servant Martin Harris humbleth not himself, and receive a witness from my hand, that he will fall into transgression. That's a great principle about testimony. It is more important than we realize. It's our testimony that will keep us from transgression. We have to come to develop faith. If we are to navigate the moral minefield of the latter days, we're going to have to learn to trust in prophets' testimony early, or we will learn by sad experience too late. So Martin, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to get a witness. And then in 33, it's back to Joseph. There are many that lie in wait to destroy thee, Joseph, from off the face of the earth. And for this cause, that thy days may be prolonged, I have given unto thee these commandments. It's so interesting how all of this is coming together. You'll get a sense when we get to section 17, and the three witnesses get to see all of these things. And how relieved Joseph is by this. By the fact that he doesn't have to be the sole repository of this reality. That he has backup, mortal human backup. It comes as such a relief to him. But again, God doesn't want to short-circuit it for the three witnesses either. So there's this interesting kind of interplay, this tension between I've got to preserve Joseph. But I've got to allow these other witnesses to develop faith as well. So Martin, and soon Oliver and David, you've got to develop the faith and humility to be able to gain a spiritual witness. Then the physical witness can come. Faith and then knowledge. And then with that knowledge, Joseph will have some backup. Your faith will save you, and your knowledge will help save him. But the order has to proceed in that way. So then, verse 34, For this cause I have said, stop, and stand still until I command thee. I will provide means whereby thou mayest accomplish the thing which I have commanded thee. Nephi would give an amen to that again Oliver's on his way and he'll pick up and you'll proceed in incredible speed through the rest of the Book of Mormon but in the meantime stop stand still remember when he tells Moses that stop and see the salvation of God or as the scriptures say elsewhere be still and know that I am God instead of barreling forward to try to establish empirical proof and, and intellectual knowledge for everything you think you are missing in life. Stop. Slow down. Stand still. And feel the presence of God in your life. Gain a testimony vertically that was first initiated by a horizontal hint from a fellow disciple of Jesus Christ as I've often said to people who are wrestling with an issue of church history in my office sitting across the table from me rather than try to read everything under the sun as far as church history is concerned dig deeper and how's your faith in God maybe this is even more powerful language stop stand still Stop thinking you have to be at the destination before the journey's even begun. Stop thinking you have to know when you haven't even worked at believing. Stop thinking you have to be perfect before you've learned how to repent. Stop thinking you have to be one with God before you've even learned how to become one with anyone else on earth. You see, verse 35, he ends, If thou art faithful in keeping my commandments, thou shalt be lifted up at the last day. Amen. That's the promise. That's the end result. It's going to be okay. But for you to be faithful, you need to learn to be full of faith. So slow down. Learn to appreciate God's divine restraint. Learn to work within it. And to grow inside it so that the power of God can grow within you. I do bear my horizontal testimony to you. In gratitude for every horizontal testimony that I've ever heard from others. That have indeed excited within me a desire to gain a vertical testimony where I can stand on my own two feet. That testimony has come for me. And I am grateful to God for it. But I am also grateful that God held back and waited for me to grow into that understanding. His restraint has made all the difference.